Uh, let me introduce uh, today's guest. So, Dr. Kenneth Valpe, uh, uh, also known as uh, Krishna Sattar Maharaj, Krishna Sattar Swami, is a teacher, writer, and a traveler. He is a research fellow at uh, OCH, HS, Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, uh, where he is the co-director of uh, the project on Bhagavad Puran, the research project on that. Together with uh, Professor Ravi Gupta, he has edited a volume of articles and translated a volume of uh, selection from Bhagavad Puran. Both volumes uh, are actually published by Columbia University. And myself uh, have uh, gone through many of the chapters uh, and I found them really fascinating and very enlightening. And um, Dr. Valpe, uh, I'm sorry if I pronounce your <laughs> name properly. Yes, it's quite right. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, thank you. Dr. Alpe is also a research fellow at the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. Uh, recently, he published uh, a book on animal ethics, which is also one of the topic of discussion uh, in this series. Uh, and he's an associate uh, at Oxford Center for Animal Ethics, OCAE, where he has written and lectured on nonviolence, environmentalism, as well as on the application of yoga principles uh, and practices for animal human relationships and animal protections and uh, most notably uh, for me uh, uh, krishna hatmara's uh, articles his lectures particularly and of course uh, books uh, it's really enlightening i find uh, after reading them after hearing his lectures i find quite nourished uh, so i felt uh, all our audience also would benefit from his association so today's topic uh, that i plan is a discussion on uh, God, the absolute nature of God and uh, Maya or the evil in a, a moral, ethical sense. Uh, so we want to discuss that. Uh, so and we want to hear uh, from Krishna um, Swami, uh, his, uh, from his, pre- what um, I mean, different uh, aspects of uh, nature of God as it is described in Gaudiya Vaishnava understanding or particularly from the Bhagavatam point of view and also uh, in a generic academia since uh, we want to learn from him. So before we begin, so uh, I plan Maharaj, uh, uh, maybe uh, usually what we do, we ask questions uh, to our guest mm-hmm. in response, uh, I, I mean that is the pattern we follow. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, if you have anything, uh, any particular way to guide us. That's also acceptable for us. Otherwise, you can continue like that. Let's play it by ear, as we say in America. We'll see what what comes up. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so before we start, uh, could you kindly uh, could you please tell us uh, the nature of God? I mean, how do you really uh, like every religion? Uh, the ultimate objective is God. So, how do uh, Eastern religions, particularly Hinduism, particularly the Gaudiya Vaishnava understanding, uh, how it differentiates uh, the understanding of God from, uh, I mean, other uh, religions. I mean, do you have any particular way to uh, hmm. say so? These are these are big questions. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you're asking about differentiation. And that's all right, but um, we might also want to explore similarity. Yeah, sure, sure, of course. I didn't uh, that. 
if if we're only looking for difference, then I don't know. That may lead us in a certain direction that may or may not be so desirable. Yeah. Um, I personally am more inclined to see similarities, um, but um, if one is only looking for similarity, one uh, also runs the danger of overlooking difference. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Somebody dropped something. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it, it's it's a challenge to find find the right, the middle way, so to say. And you also said all, all religions have this characteristic, namely uh, seeking God, but it raises the question of what constitutes a religion. Um, and the common, the common uh, case that's discussed, um, whether or not it's a religion, is Buddhism. In which um, it can be argued that the the aim is not to seek God, uh, depending on which sort of Buddhism you want to consider, because there are many different sorts of Buddhism, including what's called Pure Land Buddhism, which seems to have a lot of, uh, let's say, family resemblance to to our personalist understanding of, of God. Um, <clears throat> but in general, uh, it's, we can say that uh, Buddhist traditions are having a different approach uh, to the problems of life in which they don't consider it necessary to bring in uh, the notion of God. Uh, whether they are atheist or simply non-atheist, uh, sorry, atheist or non-theist is another question. Um, an atheist would be one who kind of actively declares there is no God, which is a kind of funny thing to say because uh, if there is no God, why is there even need to make that expression? <laughs> why deny what doesn't exist? Uh, why are you even thinking about God if you have to say God does not exist? Uh, but uh, then there's non-theism, which uh, we also find in Vedic, some streams of uh, Vedic or post-Vedic thought, uh, where the concern is... God may or may not exist, but it's not our concern. Or we may or may not be able to know uh, if God exists or if he exists, um, who, who that person, what can we know about God? We cannot know, therefore we won't concern ourselves. That's another possibility. To make generalizations is also fraught with, um, with difficulties. If we look at any given religious tradition of the world, 
there are traditions and there are sub sub traditions, and these are uh, changing over time as well. So if we look at um, Western thought about the nature of God, very broadly speaking, uh, meaning from within uh, the Jewish tradition, uh, the Christian tradition, and the Islamic tradition, the so-called Semitic <coughs> excuse me, religions, or Abrahamic sometimes they're called, uh, there are centuries of discussion about the nature of God. Centuries of writings and reflections uh, by so many, so many of their sages. And so you'll find m many of them may have wonderful insights about the nature of God. So uh, it's, you know, it's uh, it's a challenge. You don't want to say something that's oversimplifying. I just came across. Let's see if I can find this. Um, <clears throat> I came across an interesting statement uh, by one Islamic theologian from the Middle Ages, uh, which uh, surprised me. He said, here it is. Uh, this is from Al-Kindi, or Yaqub ibn Ishaq Al-Kindi, from the ninth <laughs> century. Uh, so he said, We should not be ashamed to acknowledge truth and to assimilate it from whatever source it comes to us even if it is brought to us by former generations and foreign peoples. For him who seeks the truth, there is nothing of higher value than truth itself. It, it, it never cheapens or debases him who reaches for it, but ennobles and honors him. Yeah. So that was uh, one of the, uh, one of, they're called the falasuf, uh, the um, philosopher theologians of, uh, of the Islamic, mid medieval Islamic tradition. They were trying to understand God in rational terms, in philosophical terms. Um, <clears throat> Anyway, that's just one example, I think, of an openness. I mention that because nowadays, unfortunately, our, um, our world situation is such that we tend to see everything in oversimplified ways, and we label uh, persons in um, stereotyping ways, you know. There's the Hindus and there's the Muslims and and the Christians and so on, yeah. and uh, and the effect is that it really depersonalizes all of us. And just back to uh, Al Kindi, this 
a quote from him. This reminded me of what we find in Second Canto Bhagavatam, uh, in the Chatur Shloki uh, Bhagavatam, of uh, in Chapter Nine, spoken by Lord Narayan. Uh, what is it? Etava Deva Krishna's Etava Deva. Um, I never remember when I have to. Uh, mm, that one should seek uh, the truth in all circumstances and at all times. Um, this is the last of the four verses of the Chatur Shloki. Um, one should seek in all circumstances, in all times, in all places, the truth. And so um, I think that spirit of seeking is, is what we're looking for, not, not so much the claiming that we have it all. We've got the whole thing, and um, therefore there's no more seeking necessary. Yes, right. Uh, so let's see. Uh, you were asking for differences. Maybe uh, we can sketch uh, in a very maybe a little philosophical way. So uh, as I was reflecting uh, through whatever reading that I have uh, in this context, uh, so uh, there seems to be two ways of uh, problem before each of the not only different religions, even within religion, say Hinduism, mm -hmm. different groups also. Uh, two fundamental questions like, uh, say, God is a, pers a person or is not a person. And second is uh, probably, how does he really uh, relate to its creation? Mm -hmm. So probably all of the philosophies that I surveyed, not even, uh, not necessarily religion, say any other philosophy, say pantheism, panentheism, deism, whatever name, so everywhere, uh, these two fundamental problems uh, seems to uh, be the core uh, ideas. So maybe if you can uh, guide us uh, in that uh, direction, if you wish. Um, well, you, you've already said it. It's a problem. Philosophically, it's a problem. In some ways, it's, it's something like the mind-body problem. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that... What is the relation? How, how is mind or spirit connected to the body? How is it that when I think I want to raise my hand, uh, then I can just raise it without, it's not a problem. It just, I can do it. <laughs> yeah. how, how does that work? Uh, mm -hmm. if, if, in fact, if, in fact, they are two completely different um, principles or substances how is how do they connect so right. in a way it's a similar problem how does what is the connection between between god and the world uh, right. i think i think uh, we invariably reach toward analogies in order to to get some idea of how the relation works and speaking of what I just, the example I gave, how do we connect mind and body? Um, of course, the Sri Vaishnavas, Ramanujacharya, 
um, gave exactly this analogy for the relation of God to the world. He said uh, that the world is the body of God. Uh, the relationship is one of body and soul, just as we understand for individual persons, so it is for God and the world. And you could then say, well, that doesn't really solve the problem, since mm -hmm. we have the problem of what's the relation of this. We're just sticking to pantheism kind of understanding that every creation is the God only, nothing else lived. <laughs> Well, that's another, that's another kind of solution, but um, it's been argued that Vaishnavas are panentheists, if we're going to speak of pantheism and theism, how, how are they related? Um, it, it's often said we're, one would identify as a kind of panentheism, which is that God pervades everything, um, as he explains in so many ways in Bhagavad Gita, and simultaneously, as he says in the Gita, uh, I am separate from, I am aloof from everything. Um, so uh, that would be the end part of panentheism, that God is aloof. So all the different traditions have wrestled with this in different ways. Uh, how, to, how to close the gap, so to say. And I think we can generally say of the Abrahamic traditions, there's a very strong emphasis on the otherness of God. God is, is utterly other. <laughs> than the world. He is utterly other than us. And when we speak of God as having certain attributes, we are only speaking analogically. We're only speaking as an analogy. So when we say God is good, what do we mean? Um, well, we have, from our experience, some ideas of goodness, and then we extrapolate from that. So therefore, God must be perfectly good. We kind of uh, make that uh, an analogical leap. Something like analogical regression, <laughs> if you like. Yeah, so, so the, uh, the three sort of main um, Abrahamic traditions of Judaism, Christianity, Islam have each dealt with this in different ways. Um, and each of them, I would say each of them find, despite the intellectual efforts or other types of efforts uh, to sort of bridge the gap, uh, they, they seem to, they all have their mystical traditions whereby uh, they understand if you want to really understand God, you need to um, experience God. And how do you experience God? You do it through um, some sort of mystical pursuit. I was just reading again in this same book um, later, about maybe two centuries later, uh, another 
a Muslim uh, scholar of uh, Al-Ghazali. Became extremely influential, and he started out as one of these uh, falasuf, as they're called. Um, and um, But he was completely frustrate, f- frustrated with it. Uh, he he had practically a mental breakdown. Uh, he was teaching, and then suddenly he, he was like he couldn't even speak anymore because he was in such uh, anxiety over the subject of how do we understand really who is God? How can we know for sure um, what we you know we have our theories about God, but. Is he really like that? How do we know? And so then, uh, in this kind of state of desperation, uh, he joined the Sufis. (laughs) (laughs) And the Sufis are the mystics of the Islamic tradition. And he he stayed with with this group of Sufis for 10 years. And during that time... Um, everything became clear to him that, yes, it's about experience. It's about uh, realization and whatever practices they have. I think they also do some chanting of names of God and so on. Um, but uh, he, he came, kind of came out of this very powerfully uh, speaking about this necessity to to realize God, not just to talk about and think about to realize by practice. And I think that is, uh, we can say, also distinctive about um, our Vaishnava tradition, not uniquely uh, the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition and not even uniquely Vaishnavas, um, but other uh, theistic traditions in India, that there has to be some practice uh, by which God is realized. And that's where our Srila Prabhupada insisted repeatedly uh, for the word bhakti, he would translate it not as devotion, which is typical, um, but as devotional service. That you want to realize God, then you have to engage in his service, and that is bhakti, bhakti yoga, of course. Right. So anyway, um, but bridging the gap theologically, uh, coming back now to the Vaishnava tradition, we can also, and tying into this idea of service, uh, is the whole notion of the Pancharatra system. That um, there is, mm, the supreme being is para and then he expands as vyuha, and then he expands as vibhava. Not terms we use so much in the Gaudiya tradition, but these are standard pancharatrika terms. Uh, and then he expands again as antaryami, uh, we would say paramatma, the Lord in the heart. And finally, he expands as archa murti, as the Lord in the temple. Mm-hmm. And uh, according to a prominent Sri Vaishnava, um, uh, Pilai Lokacharya, I think it was, uh, 
He said uh, that the all of the forms it's it's like Russian dolls, one within the other. So within the within the Archamurti, all the other forms are present. Mm-hmm. Which means the Art Archamurti is uh is the most powerful. <laughs> anyway, so this uh this is the Pancharatrika way of, you know, closing the gap, um, the, the whole notion of avatara. In the Christian tradition, they speak of incarnation, and they don't like it when we use the word incarnation, uh, because for, you know, we use it in relation to avatar. Yeah. Uh, Christians generally don't like that because their understanding is there is one and one only incarnation. Uh, so their idea is that Jesus, um, the Son of, of the Father God, has uh, descended, has been sent uh, as the Christ, and he is the one uh, unique link uh, between humanity and God. Um, yeah, that's, of course, a departure uh, certainly a radical departure, but it it goes with uh, their theology of the Trinity. Uh, there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We might want to translate Holy Spirit as Paramatma, um, but I don't know if they would like that. <laughs> they won't like it. <laughs> yeah. Our Paramatma is everywhere and everybody is <laughs> I don't think they would think uh, that way. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm sure there's some, I think there's some parallel there still. I think there's yeah. some, okay. some space for discussion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, as uh, from your words, uh, I gather... So, uh, two things uh, we're discussing, uh, two approaches to decipher this mystery, whether God is a person or not, or the relation, and the second is the, mystery, the connection with the work, his creation. And, uh, I mean, the first thing that we define perhaps God, uh, as as far as I know from our tradition, uh, Vaishnava tradition, so there uh, we talk about God as uh, the source of all possibilities, right, from the Vedanta Sutra, uh, the second verse, second aphorism. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. uh, so in that sense, uh, it becomes inevitable for us to include even the matter. Although apparently, we make a distinction, we make a divide between uh, God and His creation, say this universe. Uh, but at the same time, we want to embrace also matter within the realm of God because uh, uh, we want God to be the source of all things. So that way, it kind of posits a big uh, intellectual crisis, I would say, <laughs> to reconcile two different opposites. I mean, uh, but uh, how do you see uh, this these aspects in other uh, traditions and other religions? Um, well, I'm not quite sure I grasp uh, what you're saying, but I wanted to look at uh, this idea of personhood. Um, and maybe that will help us get to uh, what you want to say, because I have some notes here from one uh, 
again, a Christian theologian, a modern present-day theologian, uh, has written written on uh, something on the idea of divine personhood. And she gives uh, five characteristics of personhood, which should be should be present. So the first is um, a person has a rational nature, uh, which means has a capacity for reason and for choice. And this makes uh, this makes of God, uh, she points out, something more than Aristotle's unmoved mover. Um, the, the early Greek philosopher Aristotle had this idea, he kind of reasoned his way to an unmoved mover. Um, everything has a cause, and so there must be some uh, cause to all causes. Um, and so, but his, his cause of all causes is an unmoved mover, and that's all. <laughs> it, there's there's no reasoning capacity and no choice. He's just kind of, yeah, not a very full sense of personhood. So this is the first. A person has a rational nature, uh, which enables the person to make choices okay. and to reason. Uh, a second attribute of person, a person possesses what is called subjectivity. And one way to understand subjectivity is it's self-awareness. It's a sense of, I am aware that I am speaking right now. I am aware that I am um, being seen by others. Um, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm aware of myself thinking. Uh, and it's also, subjectivity is also, more broadly, it's just uh, sentience. Uh, Srila Prabhupada many times emphasized this point, that God is uh, the supreme being, and he's the supreme sentient being, uh, possessing senses. Uh, and so God is, from this perspective, uh, the one who is fully conscious of himself. Yes. And we can't really say that about ourselves. Um, we can't really say much about how our bodies work, for example. Right. I'm always, um, I'm always amazed by the function of digestion. <laughs> we we just put something in the mouth, we swallow, and that's it. And everything else is done for us, you know. Vaisvanara Agni. Yeah. So, so that's the second mm, quality of persons. A third one is that a person has relationships with other persons. And here, I think, is where uh, the Vaishnava tradition 
and most especially the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition really shines. Sure. Uh, specifically with uh, the notion of rasa and how God relates to his, um, well, to all beings, but especially to his eternal associates in so many wonderful ways. Right. Uh, the verse finally came to my mind, etavade eva jigyasa, tattva jigyasa natmana, anvayavyatarekadyam, yatsyat sarvatra sarvada. That was the point, <laughs> going, jumping back. Yatsyat sarvatra sarvada, everywhere and at all times. Anvayavyatarekadyam, mm. both directly and indirectly. Etavadeva one should have this desire for, for jnana. <clears throat> um, to that extent, etavan, um, referring to the previous verses. Anyway, uh, yeah, I'm getting incoherent. So relationships, we might say this is central. We understand what is a person. A person is one who has relations with other persons. Now, at this point, one could say, well, that sounds um, somewhat circular. Yeah. Uh, what, is that, what is that other person that you're having a relationship? And what does it mean to have a relationship? What is that? Well, I think that's what is, uh, is filled out by, our, um, uh, by the Godia tradition, especially as it's been elaborated by our Goswamis, uh, in particular with respect to rasa theory, uh, but uh, also the whole process of, um, of, of bhakti, bhakti as seva. And so we understand in the most basic sense what is our relation to God. It's one of service. God is the supreme uh, master, and we are his servants. So that's a relationship uh, which is defined in terms of, um, you can say also it's an analogy. Our experience of servants and masters in this world gives us some idea of what it would be to be God's servant, but only, only a slight. But the process that's given, the details of the practice, fill out uh, what that would mean in practice. This also necessarily uh, requires uh, multiplicity of entities, fundamental yes. entities, God yeah. and others. Yes. So. Yeah, which you know puts us at um, puts us at loggerheads with the Advaita Vedans. Um, <laughs> But again, uh, to see similarities and parallels uh, in the Abrahamic traditions, they, to my knowledge, uh, for the most part, also insist on individuality. And again, I was just reading the, in the Islamic theological tradition, they're very strong on this point, although they have this notion that uh, living beings are created at some time, moment in time. All the Abrahamic religions have that idea. But then, from then on, 
existing eternally and individually. And they put a lot of emphasis on the idea of our responsibility uh, for right action uh, and, yes, right behavior uh, in our relation with God. A fourth... Yeah, sorry to. Maybe I can ask uh, one question after you enumerate this five. Yeah, just the two. There's two more. One is a a person is free. Now, how you want to take freedom? Well, um, that is understood in different ways, and it's part. It's another debate. Is uh, you know free will versus destiny. And if God's control is absolute, then where is our freedom? Um, the the Bhagavad Gita is mm, based on this understanding that we are free because Krishna is giving Arjuna a choice. He's He's urging him to fight. And he's kind of saying, even if you don't fight, you'll end up fighting. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's your nature. But still, he's giving him a choice, uh, implying that we all have a choice. Um, In a sense, we understand our choice is rather narrow. It's kind of um, digital. It's one or zero. It's yes or no. It's yes to Krishna or no to Krishna. Yes to Maya. Um, but then again, it's also something more than that because we say yes to Krishna and then how are we saying yes to Krishna? How are we serving Krishna uh, in infinite variety of ways? Okay, freedom. And the final one, uh, this is a kind of technical term. A person is incommunicable. Now that doesn't mean that a person cannot communicate. That's not what it means. Um, What it means is you can't replace one person with another person and say, well, they're both persons, so what's the difference? It means that each one really is unique. And you you could say irreplaceable, in a sense. Yes. Um, technically, it's explained. This is the characteristic which distinguishes a person from being an instance of a nature, mm-hmm. uh, just being a, a sample of you know some particular nature. No, a person is is more than that. Is ir- irreplaceable, and I would say also there's. Um, Maybe, I don't know if this could be a sixth um, attribute, but irreducible. Living beings, sorry, persons are irreducible to something less than being person. Yeah, (laughs) right. So this uh, all uh, kind of uh, parallels with even the very first verse of Bhagavatam. Mm-hmm. So uh, I see the tree probably is uh, resonating with Swarat. <laughs> God is somebody who has uh, infinite amount of freedom. Mm. And then uh, 
Avigya Swarat is Avigya. Uh, I mean, is aware of everything. Right. <laughs> yes, guess, uh, yes, that is um, um, the idea of omniscience, uh, which is attributed uh, typically to God. There is a in the philosophy of religion um, in the West. Uh, there's uh, a lot of talk about um, what's called perfect person theology, um, or perfect sorry perfect being theology. That uh, there will be certain characteristics, for example, omniscience, um, omnipotence, all goodness. Mm-hmm being eternal, being... They also use the term simplicity. <laughs> uh, uh, well, it's the idea that God is is not composed of parts, mm-hmm. which could then be separated. Um, God is transcendent. God is also imminent. All these are part of perfect being theology. So, uh, so that conception uh, is uh, something like God is a, certainly not a monolithic uh, substance, certainly not. <laughs> but mm. still, uh, how if God is that kind of stuff, then uh, how does personhood really manifest? Mm. Do you see a contradiction over there? Or? <laughs> well, uh, I think that's that's the ongoing discussion, you know, how do you... How do you then relate all of this to understand or realize God? Uh, in the, the in the philosophy of religion, there's a lot of you know sort of um, um, on a level of um, rational propositional uh, discourse, uh, which is which arguably has its limits. Mm. Um, it's interesting. It, it, it's kind of brought out in the Bhagavatam. Uh, the question is raised in the beginning of Canto 10, Chapter 87, Prayers of the Personified Vedas, that how is it possible to, with with human language uh, to describe the absolute truth. And the answer that comes after many, or in the course of many, many prayers, um, very rich prayers of um, Veda Stuti, is um, there's no problem. There's no problem for two reasons. One, because God is all-powerful and therefore he can, um, he can give language by which we can communicate uh, the nature of God. And furthermore, it's no problem because um, every, ultimately every word or all of language is just for that purpose. It's just for glorifying God. And so that's what the uh, personified Vedas are doing in in those verses. They're they're answering the question by giving and uh, by modeling how to do it. Uh, 
they're modeling how to speak about God. They just go ahead and do it. <laughs> yeah. And then as we read, as we hear those verses, we come to appreciate, oh, well, this is understandable. This is, you know, it can be comprehended. Mm. It's comprehensible. Um, but always there's... Um, Always there's a sense of a remainder. Uh, and remainder, you know, in Sanskrit, the word remainder is shesha. Shesha. And so that's taken up in our, um, and this is part of Pancharatra, really, the idea that the Lord expands to become Balaram. And Balaram mm -hmm. does many different services for the Lord, all kinds of services. Yeah. In fact, that's his whole raison d'etre. He simply wants to serve the Lord. And if all, when, when all the services are done, um, are, are taken care of, uh, in case anything is left over, Shesha, that is taken by Balaram as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it, we can also kind of derive from that, uh, that it's um, in taking shelter of Balaram, we understand how to fully comprehend Krishna because it's Balaram mm -hmm. who is the, um, the Adi Guru. Mm -hmm. I'm just sort of rambling. I'm not sure where I'm going with this. Uh, yeah, but maybe, <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, just, I have a couple of questions if you permit. Uh, can I ask? Sure. So, um, so in the beginning, we were talking about uh, uh, analytical approaches uh, to decipher this mystery. And then the other one is the uh, basically mystical traditions uh, where people emphasize on experiences of the person, personhood. Mm -hmm. You cited the example of Al-Ghazali, if I remember correctly. Yes. So, so, so uh, in the example, just now you quoted the Vedastuti uh, in Srimad Bhagavatam, it is uh, 10 Canto 87 chapter. So uh, the same question is perhaps uh, the both the approaches perhaps uh, are married together in the sense. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. So uh, uh, like uh, the words fall sort of the analogies fall sort of for describing the absolute truth, and uh, uh, and the other approaches uh, you experience the Lord uh, directly. Mm -hmm. So so as as you just now mentioned, uh, so as you pursue this. Uh, uh, rational approach, analogical approach. Uh, we we words we, we use words to describe uh, Supreme Lord. And then at one point, the same words uh, reveal their meaning to us. So kind of uh, both direct experience of the Lord. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe we can cite the verse from Atak Sri Krishna Namadi Navavit Rahim in the Sevan Mukhehi Jivadho Svayameva Spuratyada. Yes. So the both uh, uh, rational approach and then uh, mystical approaches perhaps uh, glued together in, in this uh, understanding. Is that correct? Uh, yes, we might say like that. Um, because if we just look at our, our, our regular practice, we're doing... The Bhagavatam, we understand, is, is our foundation. And the Bhagavatam is... Um, is very much uh, concerned with rational understanding of God. There's so many 
um, passages which are of an analytical sort, we may say. At the same time, the Bhagavatam is narrative. So many, you know, stories, um, not story in the sense of not true, but story in the sense of a narrative. And narrative is uh, giving insight which uh, simply straight uh, analysis or uh, propositions don't necessarily give us. So the Bhagavatam is both, and and they're nicely married to, married to each other, you can say. Uh, and then the practice of hearing, reading Bhagavatam is just that. It's a practice, and it's a practice which um, we understand has a result of purification. Mm-hmm. Nashta nityam bhagavata sevaya bhagavati naishtiki bhakti becomes naishtiki becomes fixed as a process, as a result of of this hearing and chanting of of the bhagavatam and so Srila Jiva Goswami put the bhagavatam front and center of our of our tradition, um, mm-hmm. such that indeed the more um, um, propositional side of understanding, the more rational side, and for lack of a better word, the more mystical side, um, they really come. They come together, uh, so that so that uh, the the garden of bhakti uh, is nicely nourished. Yeah, yeah this is interesting. Uh, and the regarding uh, the five, uh, or maybe six, the sixth one you added, uh, characteristics of being a person. So probably may, most of them appear to be circular. <laughs> Say, for example, uh, subjectivity. Yeah. Su- subjectivity. Mm. Uh, God being a person should be aware of his own personhood. I mean, hmm. it's kind of, we are defining personhood and uh, it's becoming a circular attribute that I want to, ex- the person wants to experience his personhood. So, hmm. I mean, and then, uh, as you said, uh, this uh, the relationship, uh, that is also, yeah, that for us, the Vaishnava understanding, we have conceptions of many, uh, echo, echo, what is that? I'm forgetting the Upanishad verse uh, where we say Nitya uh, Nityanam Chaitanas Chaitananam Eko Bahunam Yo Viradati Kaman. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. So, there uh, at least we save ourselves of being circular uh, that we have two, two things to have relation. But for monist, uh, I mean, it's a big trouble. It's again becoming circular. <laughs> they have the one person. Uh, but again, in another sense, uh, the uh, the God, since it's 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 not a composite thing, uh, he is, is the same stuff. Then uh, it includes his creation also within him. So, I mean, I, I really find it very difficult to reconcile all these ideas. Uh, how do we really? logically establish uh, this uh, i mean 
uh, even in Bhagavatam also, uh, or any other scripture, uh, when somebody wants to establish logically uh, the personality of uh, absolute, is that really possible, or it's just the or uh, just the play of words? Uh, we just somewhere around work, make some workarounds and <laughs> try to. <laughs> so. Well, first of all, there are different ways. Um, when you have a word like person, um, it, there, there are different ways to approach, you know, defining personhood or the person. Um, the, the ways of defining uh, are various. And one, one way of defining, it's a technical term, I don't have it in mind, but you just decide this is what I mean by person. <laughs> And in one sense, that's what we do um, with our understanding of Krishna. We, we are saying, what is a person? Well, let's start with uh, the highest person. And, um, okay, then who is that highest person or what would that highest person be like? Well, you can't say like because he's unique. Okay, <laughs> then what is he or who is he or how is he? So then we get the entire descriptions. Mm -hmm. And the entire Bhagavatam as a whole, we understand, is also the person Bhagavat. Right. Wait, how can a book be a person? Uh, <laughs> well, um, let's not make presuppositions about what is a person. Um, okay. <laughs> and so that opens up to possibility uh, in a uh, the word person, persona, if we take the, the original, the English, which comes from the Greek, and the Greek persona originally meant mask. It was used in the Greek dramas. It was something which was covering over, and so it was a um, persona. You took on a certain character. Uh, is that what we mean by person now? Not exactly. Um, books have been written just to trace the history of uh, the meaning of the word person in Western philosophy. Whole books are written on the subject. <laughs> you know? Yeah, this is interesting. So, uh, so just to uh, nail down the points, uh, so we talked quite a lot about the personhood of uh, the per God being a person or not, and uh, Christianity or say Abrahamic religions. Uh, so they endorse for a personality. So does uh, Islam also endorse personality, or uh, how do you see? Oh that? yes, very much. Yes, God is uh, is definitely a person uh, with relation to all individuals, and they very much emphasize the individuality of, um, of, all, of all people. Uh, I don't think that extends to animals, uh, because they philosophically, to my knowledge, they're quite rooted in Aristotle, who had this idea that there are... Um, human soul, animal soul, yeah. vegetable soul, you know. 
made the discussion on form and substance uh, for rever- i mean reverse the his master's plato's uh, idea and yeah kind of uh, yeah <laughs> that's there also but no islam is very much um uh, personalist in that sense but for them person uh, this person who is god who is god allah is um so much other uh, than anything mm, that he his he doesn't have a form it's not that he doesn't have a material form but he doesn't have a form it seems uh and therefore more than any of the other abrahamic traditions they're extremely uh strong on this point that there should be no representation no effort to represent yeah. god and that of course has been the cause of uh, so much um confrontation and conflict especially in india uh where um the vedic and post vedic traditions are kind of exactly the opposite that uh god is because he's unlimited uh it is no problem for him that he also has form and any forms we see in this world are but reflections of his original form um and can he be represented yes if god directs us how to re- represent him um we can do so and we don't have to be confused thinking that god is only present in this form and that's the worry of the um, abrahamic traditions that if you represent god then you will be uh thinking god is only in this murti and nowhere else and we don't and the vaishnavas don't have that problem yeah for uh, vaishnavas uh, i mean for us the deities uh, are probably i mean he the devotee the devotees uh, it's 100% krishna standing <laughs> the same transcendental person so but uh, for somebody who is not in, i mean into this tradition for him really doesn't make a distinction between uh, uh, the statue being a stone and uh, really the personality of god it i mean the supreme person uh, with all attributes all perfection so this poses a little uh, problem at least intellectual problem that um, i mean how, how do you, how do you really establish it philosophically well i think that's a whole another discussion <laughs> actually i've <laughs> i've um, i've i've written a small book which is going to be coming out soon uh, with the australian bbt it's called krishna's wonderful form a guide for the perplexed mm-hmm. it's specifically on this topic how do we understand um the deity in the temple so yeah if maybe you can briefly maybe few minutes if you could kindly uh just well in in the first part of the book i'm addressing the um the basic mm, charge uh, of idolatry from the jewish tradition and the way i do this is to go to um, one analysis by jewish scholars of what is idolatry 
and they've identified five five different sorts of understanding or types of idolatry. Um, and so I go through each one of these in some detail. Um, one of them is representation, the idea that you can represent God by, you know, some physical form. Um, the the claim is that you cannot do that. Uh, there's there's the biblical prohibition against doing that. Um, and so I just say, well, in, in the Vaishnava tradition, it's quite the opposite. It's it's that. Um, it's very good and healthy and helpful uh, to represent God if one has uh, a proper understanding of of God um, by which one does not, you know, think that God is only in this form. Um, and then with that proper understanding, one can engage in service by which Sevan Mukhe, Hijivado, etc. The senses become Rishikeni, Rishikesha, Sevanam Bhaktiruchate, the senses become purified. So I just um, kind of go one after another in, through these. Um, the first of the principles of idolatry is actually um, most people are not familiar with. It's the notion of betrayal. And this goes back to the earliest Jewish idea that um, that um, Yahweh is is the God of Israel, and um, the Israelis uh, must follow His orders. And if they don't, they're being unfaithful, and their unfaithfulness is compared. Uh, to prostitution, uh, which is uh, can be punishable by by death, and so they took it very seriously. Um, but that applies to Jews in Israel, uh, you know, worshiping their Israeli God, who through history they came to see as the universal God. Um, so that doesn't apply very much, but I show how we understand from um, some of Krishna's statements in the in the Bhagavad Gita. He's also, mm -hmm. in effect, speaking about loyalty, um, but at the same time, he's keeping things quite open. He says, if you want to worship the demigods, you can do that. And I will give you even the faith that you do that, and you will get the results, and you will get the results quickly. But you should know that those results are actually coming from me. And you should know that you're actually kind of, you're actually quite foolish to be worshiping those devatas, <laughs> because everything is coming from me. Right. Yeah, so like that. Also, uh, worship uh, as error. Uh, one of the forms of idolatry is to do the wrong kind of worship. 
One of the interesting uh, things that came up in the reading I did was that uh, it seems there was a practice amongst uh, the Jewish people to chant names of God. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it seems uh, this became neglected. And sure. um, and uh, Maimonides, who wrote this book, A Guide for the Perplexed, the original Guide for the Perplexed, in the, what, 12th century? Um, he was concerned that people are going to get even more distracted now if they have some some murti of God. They're just going to get caught up in that uh, in that worship, and they're going to forget uh, the... I don't think by that time they were chanting, so I don't know what his worry was. But anyway... Um, there was some kind of practice of chanting names of God. So we would say, well, that's a form of God. Mm-hmm. It's a sound form. Right. Many different kinds of ways that God can appear, and one of them is sound. And we might want to even say, well, uh, you don't like to see a visual form. That's fine. No problem. Mm-hmm and just chant the names of God. And uh, and the idea that one cannot uh, pronounce the name of God, that's also there in Judaism. But that's a later development. It wasn't there originally. And in the Islamic tradition, they have their 99 names of God, mm-hmm. uh, which are all describing different qualities, mm-hmm. attributes. So, and in the Sufi traditions, I think that they're especially they're chanting names. Mm-hmm. So, Islam, even though uh, it prohibits uh, portrayal of uh, God mm. uh, some, in some pictorial way, yeah. but still uh, they do chant uh, so many names. I mean, that is itself the form of God. <laughs> yes, so, and yeah. and also the the Quran itself as a as a book, we can say that's the that's a form of God for yeah. Islam. Um, it's one way it's been explained is that for Islam, the Quran is the equivalent of Jesus in the Christian tradition in terms of mediation between God and humanity. Right. So yeah, yeah, we can you know the Vaishnava can say. That's fine. You don't want to have a um, a visual form of God. No problem. No problem. No worries, as as the as the Australians say. No worries, mate. Uh, so you can you know chant names of God. You can hear the Quran. That's fine. So the um, just to sum up uh, the the Bhagavatam conceptions. Uh, uh, really embraces, uh, I mean, the the verse that Vadanti Tattva Vidas Tattum Yajjana Madhyam Brahmeti Paramatmeti Bhagavaniti Shabdhyate. So we do have a conception where uh, we accept that God is, if, if somebody raises the question, is God uh, not a person, we have an answer, yes, he is not a person, probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then we have uh, Bhagavan is a person with all attributes. 
then we have the intermediate also <laughs> parmatma yeah. so kind this philosophy is kind of uh, yeah uh, comprehensive yeah so well that's that's one understand that's one way of understanding um a a a religious tradition is always aspiring for comprehensiveness uh so this is one way of expressing that comprehensiveness is um brahmeti paramatmeti bhagavaniti shabdiyate yes all three three in one and nothing nothing left after that <laughs> this is an interesting way to reconcile uh, mm. really. and uh, then the other well, part is uh, nothing yeah. left except for the shunyavad shunyavadi Mm-hmm. Yeah, they will say you know actually there's ultimately there is this shunyata but that's another subject but uh they write volumes and volumes and volumes of books to explain this shunyata <laughs> how does uh, this uh, bhagavatam theology uh, can it embrace uh, the sunyavada also in some way I find one very nice way that we embrace it uh, and that is in the prayer by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu Yugaitam nimeshena chakshusha pravishaitam shunyaitam jagat sarvam govinda virahina me uh, that mm, in the absence of govinda mm, I experience only emptiness and it's interesting that's another thing i was just reading because there have been long debates within buddhist traditions what do we mean by shunyata uh, there's been a proposal by some scholars that well maybe the best way to get at get at what we're talking about is to focus on the experience what what is our experience of shunyata and to that then i would say well we have an experience of shunyata and this is what it is and this is how it comes about it comes about for uh one who has such intense devotion for govinda that feeling the absence of govinda one sees everything as empty <laughs> yeah, this is really interesting <laughs> this is wonderful thank you thank you so much for that uh, uh it's already in our time it's 8:45 so yes we have some more time uh, if you are available or maybe few more minutes okay mm-hmm. okay thank you thank you so much uh, so maybe uh, we can carry forward the discussion next time uh, but uh, for today's uh, completion uh, so we discussed uh, a lot about uh, the nature of the personhood of god so uh, regarding the creation of god uh, i mean uh, in abstract sense uh, as we were discussing in the beginning the divide between god and his creation or in the similar parallels uh, maybe mind and uh, body mind body dualism so in that same note so uh, how, what is the really the existence of uh, the other side i mean uh, we at one at one instance we are saying that uh, it is part of god being, god being uh, creator of everything i mean everything is included within absolute truth then uh, how do you really uh, position the creation or the energy of uh, 
the expansions of that is emanating from god i mean how do you really position advaitins uh, kind of uh, radically differ from the vaishnava conceptions i don't know what other religions and other traditions uh, they how do they pose um i'm yes i'm not so knowledgeable myself i know that in the greek orthodox christian tradition they speak about god's energies um but whether how much we can make parallels with our understanding of energies i'm not sure because they're very much rooted in the ancient greek um uh, tradition again uh, mainly aristotle well actually they may go more to plato uh, the orthodox than the west but mm, of course in our tradition um this is straight vaishnava vedanta uh, the idea of shakti parinamavada which shila jiva goswami gives us that uh the uh, there is shakti and there's shakti man uh, there is brahman and there's the energy or energies of brahman and they are um that's where the specific idea of simultaneous inconceivable simultaneous oneness and difference comes um inconceivable but at the same time kind of not so difficult to understand in other words the example we go to examples jiva goswami says like the sun in the sunlight and we look and we see sun and we see the sunlight and well that's not very difficult you know we have it every day the sunlight and the sun <clears throat> so um there's an an in, an intimate relation between and a kind of inseparability we say between the ener- energetic and the energy Mm. Uh, and that enables us to say that there is change there is transformation there so on because it's it's um it's kind of against the rules of the game to say that brahman changes that's um you know you break the rules when you do that yeah. so we don't say that we say yeah. that the energies of brahman are ch- changed shakti yeah. parina shakti parinamavada that's so my understanding is, so this example uh, of uh, sunshine i also find it little difficult in the sense uh, i mean the the stress on the word simultaneous is little <laughs> for me little problematic i mean i'm mm. not able to follow it properly so when when we cite the word simultaneous uh, i mean say the example of uh, sun and sunshine mm. sun is right within my room and it's not within my room so hmm. how do i really fit into my simultaneous existence i mean i really find it very difficult could you kindly elaborate a bit possible i don't know how to <laughs> well in in that analogy um the sun is is in your room but if you close the curtains to your window then immediately the sun is kept out um in other words mm, the source of that light 
um, because it has been cut off by your curtains, uh, prevents um, the energy, in this case the light, to come through, even though the sun... Uh, even though the sun is so far away, it's coming through as long as the window's open. Uh, and that is the, the non-difference. And then we, we see the um, dependence of the energy on the energetic as soon as we block the, ener the energy. You see what I'm saying? The, the sun ray that's coming, as they say, 93 million miles, mm. is a constant stream. Yeah. It's not that it's, you know, some something that just got sent out and, the, and then the sun turns off or something. It's a constant stream. It's ongoing. Yeah. So in the same way, um, we are ourselves we are therefore part Prabhupada used that expression part and parcel of God um, we are connected with God uh, all the time and therefore we are alive because we have that connection I see uh, a hand up and there is Dr. Varun Shukla Vanam Alidas should we respond? Yeah, yeah please, please. And uh, I also also posted in the chat box. If any of the participants if you have any questions, one two more questions, uh, it's already uh, and uh, it's fifty, but we can still maybe one two questions you can take. Yeah, Banamali, uh, uh if you want, you can unmute yourself. Oh, Maharaj, uh, there are four Vaishnava Sampradaya. So, uh, from which Sampradaya uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Prophet Muhammad and Moses came? Ah, <laughs> yeah, the idea of Sampradaya, of course, they don't use the expression Sampradaya. That's uh, from the um, from the Vedic or post-Vedic tradition. But they do speak uh, very much of, um, of a kind of succession. Uh, which, yes, as I understand, comes from um, from Abraham and, and then goes through various, so many generations. And I believe they speak of Jesus as, um, as being a descendant. Um, I, I don't know if that's, I think so, that's used. Uh, a descendant of King David and, and, and these, they're, it's been so long since I've read any of this, but uh, in at least one of the four main Gospels, in the very beginning, they list so many names uh, to highlight, to make this point that, you know, there is this succession. There is one more question from uh, Charuta Kale. Mm -hmm. So he, I don't know he or she, perhaps she. So uh, he's saying that how do we explain God's omnipotence and benevolence in the face of uh, sufferings like uh, that is happening in Ukraine currently, and all the suffering that uh, that has already 
existent in this world? Well, you know, that is the uh, ever per perennial question, uh, which yeah. is not something I think I can get into this time. Um, yeah. the, the discussion on um, how, I mean, you have worded uh, the question in a certain way, and it's, it's, it's a question which has engaged uh, theologians for centuries and more than centuries for millennia. And the effort to answer the question is called theodicy. Theodicy is essentially the effort to explain how a, how a perfect being, um, God, can be existing and what we experience as, um, as, as evil in the world, how all of the, how, how these can be reconciled. Um, and it's difficult. It's, it's really difficult. Uh, we do it, but uh, whether anyone has done it really thoroughly, Srila Prabhupada generally uh, uses the analogy of the prison, that we are being punished, we are in a condition uh, which is one essentially of punishment, and uh, but it's also of reform. And so if we understand that purpose of material world uh, as, as reform above all, then uh, we can understand how, how God is allowing uh, so many miseries to take place. Still, it can be difficult, and uh, especially this has been challenging for the Jewish tradition after the what is called the Holocaust, uh, the um, essentially the murder of some six million Jews, mainly in Germany, also here in Poland. Um, you know, what kind of God would allow this to happen? And they've. Again, they've written volumes and volumes and volumes of books trying to answer this question. Yeah, this uh, problem of evil is really <laughs> the foremost argument of even atheist uh, to say that there is no God. This, hmm. this is really, maybe hmm. we can, if you permit, next time we can reflect more on these issues. Uh, yes. Okay. So there is just one more question. Uh, Sankar, uh, Sankar da, from Sankar Das. Mm. If you like, you can directly unmute yourself or you can type. Hello. Yes, I, I want to ask yep. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Yeah, please go uh, ahead. I, I want to ask that uh, after studying so many, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, after studying so many uh, religious, uh, currently many forms of religions, what is your experience? Like, are we reaching uh, to a stage where we can understand the God, or still we are in the process of understanding it. Because mm. many religions have actually tried to understand it from their perspective. Mm -hmm. We cannot compare every religion to each other, but yes, they are still figuring out about the God. Mm -hmm. So what is your remark on this point? Yeah, I, I think, thank you. It's an interesting question, which I think one could take 
as an individual or as um, in a collective sense? Uh, are we, are we the human Correct. race? Yes, collective. Yeah. Are we as a human yes. race coming to a better understanding of who is God? Um, one would like to yes. hope so. <laughs> one would like to hope so. Yes. But one uh, uh, wonders... Yes. One sometimes yes. wonders if we are making any progress. Uh, I personally go through different moods. Oh. Sometimes I'm feeling more hopeful and sometimes less. But I'm especially hopeful thinking how, um, how strongly and clearly our own acharyas have presented um, the bhakti tradition uh, to identify God as indeed... Uh, having a name, having a place, having uh, qualities, name, form, qualities, pastimes. Um, for me, this is our mm -hmm. hope that people can really. This is this is um, you know so attractive. Krishna is so attractive uh, that yes, it's Very it's true. it's a. Uh, Prabhupada had great. Yeah. He had great. Uh, great faith and hope that the world would take take up this idea of God and take it seriously. So, Correct. Correct. Yeah. Any further questions uh, from the participants? Or can, uh, uh, Hare Krishna. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking this nice question. So uh, I don't think we have uh, more questions for today. Uh, it's already 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in India. Yes. Uh, it must be some 4.30 at your place. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, thank you very much, uh, Krishna Tumaras, uh, uh, for kindly My pleasure. enlightening us in so many varied uh, aspects uh, from your rich experiences that you carry over the many decades. So, we hope to hear from you uh, in subsequent uh, days, uh, next week. Yes. Of course, next week. Next week, the discussion will be a bit shorter because uh, he has another engagement. little right shorter, up. yes. We can wrap it up in uh, one hour. So, Yes, what is our topic next week? I th I'm looking. Hermeneutics <laughs> of faith and reason across traditions. Hmm. Or any other thing, uh, if you'd like to make uh, a natural uh, carry forward from this discussion, you can suggest, or uh, maybe problem we will, we can discuss, whatever you feel. Yeah, come, we can, perhaps we can address this also. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so thank you so much. Uh, today we discussed uh, quite a lot about the personhood of God and uh, how different traditions uh, say different things about personhood. We talked about uh, uh, two approaches, uh, if you, if I'm right, uh, the analogical rational approach and then uh, uh, this mystical approach, which is their practical every tradition and our Bhagavatam, which is uh, kind of so wonderful literature that it embraces uh, all kinds of uh, aspects uh, that are explored in different religions. It embraces rational and also mystical tradition. So it's such a, such a wonderful text and Krishnatra uh, uh, Maharaj is uh, I would say living example, I mean, living Bhagavat, because it's uh, <laughs> exemplifying through his uh, practices, uh, the message that is there in Bhagavatam. So we are so delighted and so honored that he kindly agreed uh, to be with us and enlighten us. So we are so thankful to you, Manas. Thank you so much. 
Thank you, and all the best to all of our participants. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.